Welcome back to the Invest Smarter Podcast. I'm Dave DeWitt, and this is the show where your investing and retirement questions get answered. Now, I'm really looking forward to the show today because we learn about investing in companies that actually do innovative stuff and don't participate in what my brilliant guest, Dan Toma, calls innovation theatrics, where they put on a show and say, look at us innovate, but nothing happens. Dan is an innovation expert who helps companies transform into innovation machines, and he'll give tips on how to spot innovation and give some examples of companies that have done a great job with it, like Microsoft. Plus, I'm also introducing a new segment to the show where I'll talk about some headlines that caught my eye during the week. Today, I'm looking at some new data about how underprepared way too many baby boomers are for retirement. But the news isn't all bad. Some new legislation is paving the way for easier and more convenient ways for everyone to save for retirement. All right, now listen up. If you're like many of the people I talk to every day, then you might be wondering about how to manage those darn taxes in retirement. Or maybe you're not worried about this at all. But if you're not, well, maybe you should think about it. But regardless, we've got you covered because we do have a webinar for this. So please head on over to DeWittCM.com forward slash taxes and register. It'll be on September 23rd at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and it'll be a blast. And please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That would be most, most appreciated. Okay, let's get on with the show, shall we? In America, the infrastructure for retirement has shifted from a system of pensions or defined benefit plans to 401k plans. The risk of having enough savings for retirement was essentially passed from the corporation to the individual. This shift was really kickstarted in the 1980s after Congress passed a new tax code which introduced the 401k. Now, fast forwarding 40 years, the result is not necessarily all that convincing. To me, the financial education has never been and is certainly still not broad enough to the point where the average person knows how to take full advantage of all of the retirement vehicles available to them. It's kind of like you can't you can't give someone who has never even seen a body of water in his life a fishing rod and expect him to go catch a fish. So where are we at today? According to a Forbes article by Dan Doonan, who is the executive director of the National Institute on Retirement Security, most Americans are simply not amassing sufficient assets to maintain their current standard of living in retirement. I mean, get this. The median amount of financial assets owned by baby boomers is less than 50 thousand dollars. This translates to about $160 a month in retirement income, obviously not even cutting it close to enough. In fact, a new analysis from the Federal Reserve's Survey of Consumer Finances shows that the bottom 50% of baby boomers own just 2% of the financial assets among the entire generation. And the top 5% of boomers and the top 5% of boomers by net worth own 58% of the boomer financial assets. This is obviously a problem, and it's definitely not to say anything bad about the wealthy guys, but we need more education, more incentives for people to make smart decisions with their finances because one day you might wake up and just realize, holy crap, I'm tired of working, but I just can't stop working. I have to work because $160 a month ain't going to cut it. To me, it seems a little late coming, but some states are establishing um, state-facilitated retirement savings plans like in California, Illinois, and Oregon, and Virginia has enacted legislation in 2021 to establish an auto IRA savings um, accounts, and New York State has passed legislation that would actually make their laws go from a voluntary to a mandatory auto IRA program. Now, now this would give employees without access to a workplace retirement savings plan a way to save efficiently, and it wouldn't be tied to their employer. Now, there are some private sector things too. Pooled employer plans and multiple employer plans are going to allow small businesses to pool resources together to create retirement plans for employees um, at a more efficient cost to the actual employer. Now, this just makes too much sense to me. Kind of strange, actually, that this isn't really already happening in any sort of widespread way. Can you imagine if we had, for the last 40 years, every single worker was saving? The stats would look so much different, I think. And there's definitely policy solutions out there to make saving for retirement more convenient and more accessible for everybody. But I still think education is the most important thing. 
going forward at least. We need to be teaching people about personal finance starting at an early age. The nation's report card on financial literacy gave 66% of states a grade of C or worse for financial literacy instruction. So clearly there's so much more room for improvement so they can live the life they want in retirement. And now it's time for the interview with Dan Toma, the innovation expert. All right, Dan Toma, welcome to the Investment Podcast. It's really great to have you here. Thank you very much for, for hosting me. Yeah, so checking out your background, um, you're sort of like an innovation expert. And how did you become to be an innovation expert? Uh, I would say more by chance than by design, to be, to be frank with you. Uh, I studied my career in entrepreneurship. So I founded my first company when I was 19. And then started working with startups, working with uh, with my startup idea, working with other people's startup ideas, and then working with accelerator programs. And at one point, I got headhunted by a large telecommunication company, which uh, which I ended up joining. And um, I joined their ranks. And then there is where I realized that uh, the that particular organization, but in general, large organization corporations suffer from a lack of understanding of how to build um, innovative products. And uh, it's actually a pity because they do have the resources to do it. They just don't know how. That's definitely interesting. Um, I can't wait to get into more of this. But uh, so what are you actually doing now to, um, to help, help companies? Yeah, so um, I, I, wrote, I wrote a very popular book back in 2017. It's called, it's called The Corporate Startup. I never actually thought of myself as, uh, as an author before. I just wanted to get off my chest some of the things that I thought were were wrong in how large organizations approach innovation, and uh, some of the basically document some of the things that I was doing with um, my clients or the people or the companies I was um, full time employee of. Um, essentially, now I'm helping through my consultancy company. We help large organizations transform. Uh, from being a monolithic organization that does five-year planning to being a more agile organization, which is able to, um, I'm going to repeat myself here, uh, in an agile way, uh, change and find new direction based on feedback from the market, based on reactions from the market, react to um, you know unforeseen circumstances like we had last year, for example, with uh, with the COVID crisis. Okay, cool. So. So you're kind of like, um, you know, really helping from the inside out. Um, and then me, like an investor, I'm trying to sort of identify companies that have innovation. And sometimes it's hard to pin, you know, are they really truly innovating or are they just doing, or does it just appear that they're innovating? So, so like one question I would have is like, how do we even define innovation? Right. Uh, we actually have a word for what you just mentioned. It's called innovation theater, where you just do the theatrics of innovation, mm-hmm. but there is nothing coming out the, the other end. Uh, essentially, you're building labs, you're playing with post-it notes, you're buying expensive furniture, you're all over social media with your lab. But then if somebody's going to look closer at it, there's no products coming out of there for years on end. Um, now, uh, how do you define innovation? I think um, it's very important for every organization to find their own definition and communicate that properly within the organization for people to focus on on, on uh, certain aspects of work, but also communicate it outside, meaning to, to investors and uh, to other stakeholders, essentially, be it partners, being government, being suppliers. Um, my personal definition of innovation is um, a new idea with a sustainable business model behind. And by sustainable business model means that something that... Um, you basically are profitable with standalone. Not something that is profitable because it's part of this huge organization, but something that is profitable and could be profitable even it's going to be a spin-off or it's going to find investors from from outside or essentially essentially like like the startup, right? Okay. That seems like a good definition because it's it's self-sustaining. You can't just have a great idea and then just say, I'm innovating and I have this product. Or have this idea, and then if, yep. if if an innovation can't really spread across the world if there's no market for it, or if there's no actual plan to make it work, like so yeah. I, otherwise, we just otherwise we should just call it uh, inv- uh, uh, invention. If we just call it invention, that's essentially new stuff. It becomes innovation once you have invention plus a sustainable business model. Once that particular invention is able to bring in money. And um, it, it's it's very interesting, also for from an investor or from an investor perspective. If you look at the top fifty most innovative companies in the world, and this is something that BCG is publishing on a yearly basis, 
Um, if you look at that top and you put next to it the R&D, um, the biggest R&D spenders in the world for the same year, you're going to find a lot of discrepancy in between the two tops. You're going to find a lot of companies that are spending huge amounts on, um, on R&D, but they get very little back in terms of, uh, in terms of innovation. Um, I can name a few, but again, I would encourage the, the listeners to do their own research. Um, look at Volkswagen, for example. They are, I think, number three in 2020. They were number three in terms of R&D expenditure. We're talking budget of north of 10 billion. And uh, on the innovator top, they are probably in the last five companies in the, in the top 50. Um, and some industries are more prone to suffering from this than other industries. Um, if you look at pharma, for example, that's, that's a very good example. Um, if you look at the pharma industry, you're going to find probably 10, 12 companies on the top 50 uh, R&D um, spenders. And you are going to find only two or three on the top innovators, meaning that in pharma in particular, they tend to spend a lot on R&D, but they don't get anything back in terms of, um, in terms of new revenue where they're not really considered to be innovative companies. Yeah, I guess pharma is notorious for that because yeah. they, put, they, they have the idea and then they have to invest so much money to try and make it come to fruition. And then it all comes down to the success of trials. And even if the trials is, is successful, did they truly identify a market that actually needed this? Um, so exactly. there's a lot that goes into it. So I wanted to ask you, what, so what comes along with innovation besides just having the new idea? There's a lot of stuff on the back end that has to work well together, right? Yeah, it's basically the process of bringing the idea to market, right? It's great that you have a good idea and it's great that you probably validated that you're solving a problem in the market. It's a problem worth solving, right? The market is big enough, so on and so forth. Uh, but you also have to have the process internally that's going to uh, make the development of the idea effective and efficient at the same time. Uh, it doesn't matter if you've identified a problem and you had a great idea to solve that problem, if it's going to take you three, four, five years to, to launch it when the startup across the street can do it in six months. So the, the internal process is also um, very, very uh, important. And together with that comes, comes the leadership for innovation. Are people giving enough? Time to to innovate. Are there are, is there enough air cover or air support for for innovation at the C suite within within the company, or is innovation just seen as a nice to have that we can just do it on the side? Right. So, so something I always wonder is like every successful company that has become big had to be innovative at the beginning. They started off being innovative. They were profitable. They made money whatever, they become bigger. They have now thousands of employees. Uh, what are the, some of the things that like happen that starts to just like internally just kill the, the continued um, development and innovation of a company? They hired a lot of MBAs at one point. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I, I, again, I'm guilty of having an MBA myself. So uh, I'm, I'm not bashing the people having MBAs. No, essentially they hired a lot of uh, people with management skills. And they diluted the uh, entrepreneurial or innovation spirit that was there at the beginning. Nothing against people with, with MBAs, nothing against people that are very good at planning and very good at exploiting existing business models. That, that's a skill in itself. I, for one, don't know how to do that very well. I'm pretty terrible, I would say, at that. Uh, however, you need to have a good mix of people within the company. You have to have uh, explorers, people that are able to move stuff from zero to one. But also you have to have the exploiters, the people that are able to exploit an opportunities, people that are able to move something from one to 10 to 100 to a million. Uh, these people need to coexist. And the, the more we hire one part and we, we fail to hire the other part, uh, the more problems we're going to have. If we only have explorers, this is not going to be very good for our bottom line because essentially we're going to just get have a lot of great ideas that other competitors might pick up, pick up on. Uh, an example here would be Xerox Spark, right? The invention of the mouse. Uh, Xerox had the idea. Uh, they had it in the lab, but it took uh, Steve Jobs to actually bring the idea to market, put it in, in, inside of a sustainable business model and, and market it and be profitable with it. Um, you see, essentially, Xerox had a lot of explorers, but not a lot of exploiters. Um, and then on the other, on the other end, end of the scale, you have companies which are 
primarily uh, populated by, by exploiters, people that know how to squeeze the last cent out of an idea, uh, but they are terrible at moving something from, from zero to one. So a company that, that has potential for, for growth and potential for a sustainable future is a company that's able to hire both. And it's a company where both um, personas, if you want, are tolerated and uh, they live in an environment which doesn't hinder their performance in any way. If you are if you are an explorer in an exploit environment, it's going to be very difficult for you to move something. Same goes the other way around. If you are an exploiter in a super chaotic environment like the one uh, explorers like, um, again, it's going to be very difficult for you to even even understand what's going on. That's really interesting. I, what do you think is the solution to that? I mean, um, I feel like I used to work at a nine to five, and I felt like I was just had a I had a, a manager who you know just made sure we did our task and you know. If we had ideas, I didn't feel like I was able to sort of, I had no avenue to really sort of stamp my claim on something, you know? Right. Um, obviously, I think the solutions um, boil down, are, are very individual, let's put it this way. Uh, they boil down to, to the organizational culture of, of every, every company. Um, now, what we need to, we need to understand, we need to understand culture. Um, we need to understand the fact that Innovation doesn't just happen. It needs to have an environment where, where it's fostered, where it's nurtured, where it's encouraged. Um, and that comes from leadership. So look at the leadership um, of a company and uh, they will be the one that are able to create the environment for, uh, for innovation to happen. Um, second, you also have to look at, um, again, the type of hires that they, uh, that they make. Um, do they just seek people that have an employee career path or do they actually seek diversity? And I'm not talking here about just skin color or gender or whatever. I'm talking here about psychological diversity. People that come from different backgrounds, you know, me and you, some people might say we look, we look the same, we're the same. I guess we're pretty different. Uh, we, we had like different, uh, different experiences growing up. We had different experiences. Um, you know, in school, so we're we're pretty different, and I think we should encourage this diversity of uh, of opinion. Only in organizations that are able to encourage it and foster diversity, um, you will see the thing that people call serendipity. Oh my God, they is just this great idea that came out of that company. How do they do it? Well, they do it because they've encouraged um, psychological diversity. I would say. Yeah, that's that's interesting. That psychological diversity is. Uh... Probably the most important thing, um, because you you can have a lot of people that look a lot different, but have think the same exact way. Um, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Like I had, I had, I had colleagues. I have very good friends, uh, different ethnicity. They grew up in a different country, and then we went to the same school, and we ended up thinking the same, although we were totally different the way the way we look. Right? Where my where my or my female colleagues, right? The MBA, we were still thinking the same, although one was male, one was female. However, if I would be put um, in a room next to somebody that went to art school and we kind of like look the same, uh, our ideas on, on business, on um, innovation, on sustainability or other topics will totally diverge. Yeah, that's so, that's so, so true. Now, in the world of like investing, um, sometimes it's hard to identify um, innovative companies that are really going to uh, be prosperous in the future because... Uh, there's not always as much transparency. Yeah, we can look at the 10K, the the financial statements, and um, and try and figure out like if they're growing. But like, we, in order for a company to be successful long term, there needs to be a lot of innovation. So how are, how can investors who want to select some very innovative companies to invest in? Um, what are some ways they can go about doing that? Uh, right. Good question. Um, let's uh, let's unpack something that you just said. Right. A lot of people look at the financial uh, statement of a company. Actually, there's been a research by an NYU professor. Um, his name is Baruch Lev. People can can look this uh, up. Um, and uh, Baruch basically had a research spanning, I think, ten or twenty years. Uh, what he uncovered in his research is that investors tend to use financial statements um, one out of 10 cases when deciding to invest in a certain company. So that's about 10% of uh, 10% of the decision is made based on financial statements. And the value of financial statements have, has been uh, going down, has been decreasing 
from, I think, the early 90s to today. Um, now, a lot of people base their investment decision, unfortunately, on Twitter. Right? They, they, uh, they follow Elon Musk. They follow uh, other, other leaders. And they say, oh, I'm going, to, I'm going to do what Elon is doing or I'm going to invest in Tesla because Elon is such a cool guy. Uh, I'm not saying that Elon is not a good guy. I'm not saying that, that we should not invest in Tesla. I'm saying that uh, there should probably be um, a, a middle ground between not using financial statements at all and just using Twitter. Um, and I think that that particular middle ground comes into a bit more thorough analysis of your um, of the company you want to invest in, and in that particular thorough analysis, you need to look at their track record of being able to grow beyond their core, uh, being able to always change their core. Very interesting here. Um, take for example Microsoft. It's it's a company I totally love as an as an example. They starting doing um, you know the operating systems. And now the operating system is no longer existent, if you want. And if you check their, uh, their statements, you're going to realize that the operating system is generating, I think, probably about 10% of Microsoft revenue. Everything else comes from cloud. Now, cloud is their bread and butter. It's now their core, which, I don't know, five, 10 years ago was at the edges. I think Microsoft is a great company that was able to reinvent itself. Um, another company that I, that I really like, organization I really like, Smithsonian. Uh, they, they operate the museum. They have their organization, right? They do that. However, they are now growing beyond their board. Now, they have uh, pay-to-watch um, pay uh, channels. Uh, they have their own app for, for streaming content. I think, again, this is an organization that's able to change their core from what it used to be 10, 15, 20 years ago to something that's going to be future-proof or at least future-proof for the next 5, 10, 15 years. Um, again, I would look for organizations that are able to do that consistently or at least if you feel that it's too late now to invest in a Microsoft um, because the potential of growth is no longer exponential. I think the exponential curve just uh, just passed and I'll probably is going to end up pretty flat. Who knows, right? Um I would look for organizations that have strong leadership and leadership with a very clear vision and leadership that has the support of uh, financial institutions and leadership that has the support of, uh, let's say, bigger bigger investors. Um, if you ask me for uh, you know tips here on what companies to invest in, I don't have uh, any idea, to be honest with you. Uh, but this, if I would have to do it, this is what I would recommend uh, myself to to do. Just look for people that have a vision and look for that vision to have enough backing internally and externally. And again, look for look for, for track record, either track record of your organization or track record of that particular senior leader. Let's say if he was a CEO of another company that went from transformation, uh, was he successful there? Was he able to build growth outside outside of core? Um, you know, we spoke earlier about pharma. Pharma is in a very interesting position now. Um, everybody's looking for core. They call they call it. Um, sorry, they they look for growth. They look for growth that they call growth beyond the pill, uh, meaning growing in different directions that don't have to do with their traditional, um, let's say, pharma business, where it basically research a molecule test the molecule, package the molecule, sell, sell the molecule. Um, however, the problem in pharma is that they unfortunately use the wrong mycin and the wrong approach to beyond the pill ideas. They try to build software products with, um, with the, uh, the mindset of a, of a pill-producing company. There are examples of organizations that are able to successfully grow beyond the pill, and I think a good example here would be Roche. Um, Roche actually is growing in the software business a lot, is building software as a service for labs, is, uh, is a very interesting company to look at from an investor perspective. That will be my tip, right? <laughs> you haven't asked for a tip, that, that will be my tip. Uh, Roche is an interesting company. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder how they were able to execute on that, um, having to probably hire some different sort of people in order to actually make that process or that a success because maybe they couldn't rely on what they already had. 
A hundred percent. And again, if you're if you're able to uh, get so intimate with with the company you want to invest in, uh, look at their hire policy. Look at uh, look at uh, who have they been hiring over the past three, four, five years. Um, I'm not going to give names here, but there's another uh, Swiss pharma company. I can't disclose the name. I'm under NDA with them, and they actually hired some uh, leaders in the product department and in the in innovation department that come from a major technology company in Silicon Valley. And that's very interesting. Again, shows that that particular company at least tries or do what they can to build the capability inside to grow beyond beyond the pill core. Yeah, that's that's definitely good. And that's definitely important um, to be able to be flexible and change. And going back to Microsoft, um, what do you think about the ability to drop something that's not working? Like I know they had they at one point they were trying to transform into the mobile, you know, make mobile phones and have a mobile mm-hmm. operating system. But you know, they didn't dig their feet in. It seems like they dropped that. I think it's uh, I think it's very important for organization to know when to kill stuff and to kill stuff, not to be stubborn and not to think of of yourself that you can make everything successful by slapping the brand on it. Like, oh, we're Microsoft. We're just going to slap the, the 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 Microsoft logo, and people will just buy it. Um, I think it was a step in the right direction when they discontinued the, the, the mobile direction uh, that they were on, the mobile path they were on. Uh, obviously, that came with a change of leadership, but that's part of the game. Um, and again, that shows that Microsoft as an organization was mature enough to realize that, that that's a battle they should not be fighting because there's no way they can they can win against the likes of Apple or, or Google. Right. So. You mentioned the change in leadership. That gets me thinking about like boardrooms. How important is it to analyze the board members of a company that sometimes are making decisions? Yeah, super important. Again, if you're if you're able to have that kind of access, if you're able to do a bit of digging and understand who are the people, what's their background, what's their expertise, um, again, it's it's super important. You want to have people. The, the problem nowadays is that most of your organization listed at the, the stock exchange let's take those for let's take those for example in those organizations i would say that only a handful of people have had formal training in innovation and entrepreneurship only a handful uh, and by formal by formal i don't mean they went to an entrepreneurial class at stanford i talk about that plus having hands on experience of having started their own startup or be part of a growing startup or be part of an accelerator program. Only a handful have that. However, I believe that with time, this will change. There's going to be more people that went on an entrepreneurial path that end up having a, uh, a position in the board of a company. So again, if you're an investor and you have access to um, data around that particular uh, boardroom, by all means, use it and try to look for uh, people that have an entrepreneurial background. I can't tell you if you need to look for for a certain ratio. I don't know. One in three need need to have that 30% or 50%. Um, You need to look for uh, basically 0%. If 0% have entrepreneurial background, I would be very hesitant to invest in, uh, in the company. Very, very hesitant. If you have their, I don't know, 20%, 25%, at least there will be some interesting conversations uh, going on in, in those meetings. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a great point. It's a great point. Um, another thing I wonder about is um, I've seen some data on differences in performance between companies that have a stern number of females on the board, where females are actually um, helping you know, in certain ways, maybe with a longer term vision. Do you have any thoughts around that? Yeah, again, it goes back to to that diversity thing, right? Um, that's 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 a proxy for diversity. If you just look at gender, it's a shortcut if you want to to diversity. Uh, again, I would definitely look for I would definitely look for um, for how diverse the board is. Uh, there there is a certain German company. It, I don't think it's actually listed, but they're pretty big. They're they are in, in automotive. Um, actually, they're a supplier for parts. I'm not going to mention them. People might figure out who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And they have a problem of uh, of diversity. Essentially, they just hired their first uh, female board member. Um, I think she just started at the beginning of this year or fall last year. And uh, it was the first time actually last year when they had a board member that didn't have a uh, German origin. 
And again, that doesn't actually speak diversity to me. So uh, I would be very hesitant again to to look at uh, to look at that company in terms of a long term investment. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I just always like to think like men and women are very different. <laughs> Sometimes we think differently, and women are really good at sort of uh, uh, really thinking about the long term future. I don't know if it's because you know they're their maternal instinct or whatever. And men just want the, you know, I want this now. I want instant gratification kind of thing. I don't know if there's some differences there, but I do feel like a balance between, between that is important. Of course, again, you still could have females and men that think the same way. So of course you have to really look into the, as deep yeah, as, I said, as you can. Gender is just a proxy for diversity yeah. is, is a shortcut. I, I think that if we just look at gender diversity, that's probably going to, to be correct in terms of psychological diversity, probably one out of three cases, which is good enough. Uh, but again, I'm not a statistician. Uh, I don't have a, a background in, in diversity or anything like that. I'm just uh, a guy with an opinion. Let's put it this way. Uh, again, all my, all my evidence is empirical. So uh, through, through my, my empirical evidence lens, uh, I can tell you that in most cases, it's, uh, it's, it's um, gender diversity is a, is a proxy and it's a shortcut for, for psychological diversity, but it works. It's a shortcut that definitely works. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Uh, what do, you, do you have any thoughts about um, like ESG and is, if, to what extent that is um, corporations that are trying really hard to uh, sort of meet some of these sort of like arbitrary standards, if it's, if it's kind of just like a virtue signaling thing or, uh, or if there's anything, if it's actually a healthy thing. Well, I think, again, I'm not an ESG expert, although I, I work a lot in innovation. And I think innovation has a very close neighbor in, in ESG because a lot of the time, the, the sustainability solutions have to come from the, from the innovation side of the organization where the people that work in innovation are being tasked to develop this, this sustainability um, solutions. I'm seeing now um, ESG as, uh, as being top of mind with a lot of organizations around the world. Uh, there's a certain uh, chemical company in the U.S. actually listed uh, that just changed the title of the chief technology officer to chief technology and sustainability officer that was, uh, that was going on last year. Um, the, the company is DuPont and you can research that. And I think they're doing amazing work on, on sustainability, especially around uh, water management and water treatment solutions. Um, haven't worked with them, so I'm not promoting them because I work with them. I actually am a big fan of what they're doing. Um, it's, um, I, I think we should, you know, have this conversation again, probably in a year or two. Because I think that at the moment, um, the entire ESG topic seems to look like the innovation topic 10 years ago. Everybody's speaking mm-hmm. about it, but there's not that many people doing something, properly doing something, we're moving in, in the right direction. I think it's top of mind with, with many. I'm just uh, wary of this. This might transform into greenwashing at one point for some organizations. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that everybody's greenwashing. I'm just saying that this might happen. The greenwashing is the equivalent of the innovation theater we spoke earlier. You just put a bunch of people in a room, you give them post-it notes, and you claim you're, you're a super innovative organization. Um, ESG might end up being the same, same thing. We're just going to have everybody drive hybrid or electric cars, and we call ourselves a sustainable organization. Um, actually, there's a spectrum of good from we just want to be compliant all the way to solving world's problem. And I think um, investors, if they care about that, should look at where um, does an organization fall on that spectrum of good. One of my, one of my colleagues in, in the company wrote an article recently about the spectrum of good, and uh, she identified four or five um, areas, if you want, on that spectrum. And it goes from all the way from we don't care about anything to we actually want to solve certain problems. And there's an entire array of things where, where, you, can, uh, where you can land as a company. Um, again, I would encourage you to look at that spectrum and see if the actions that a certain company is taking, where do those actions actually fall on the spectrum and try to understand um, if there is real motivation and, um, and, and real interest in, in doing good. And obviously... Uh, look if that doing good is combined with uh, with with a solid financial strategy. Is that just going to be selling one dollar bills for fifty cent, just because uh, you want to be seen as a good company, or is there a a business play at hand? 
Yeah, because I was going to ask you, like um, companies that are focusing so much on trying to look the part, um, if that's if they're doing that um, at the expense of maybe what they really should be doing, which is still focusing on their core competency and innovating, then it could come at a at a cost. Yeah, I don't think I, I don't think that doing good and being a sustainable uh, company um, is the opposite of being a profitable company. I think that uh, there there are plenty plenty examples out there of companies that that switched to uh, to being a, a green company, if you want, for lack of better words, to being a sustainable company. And there's an example that comes to mind. Uh, I can't remember the name of the company. But I would definitely encourage people to look it up. There's, it's, it's an energy company out of Denmark. I can't remember the name, but essentially they've been on a very interesting transformation journey. They were, they were doing oil and gas up until five or 10 years ago. And now they're uh, doing uh, only electrical energy that comes from renewable sources, specifically wind energy, offshore wind, and uh, photovoltaic cells. So again, it's a very interesting uh, case example of a company that was able to transform and be profitable at the same time. Again, sustainable from an environmental perspective, but also sustainable financially. I think that through this transformation, they actually grew two or threefold. So Hmm. uh, again, great, great company to look at. I can't remember the name. I would encourage you, David, and I would encourage uh, the, the, the listeners to look it up. Company doing energy out of Denmark. This will be the keywords that you should <laughs> okay. <look> for. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. That sounds like a, quite the challenge too, though, to, to change um, uh, to sustainable energy uh, and be profitable. Um, that, that they must have had a very good plan, you know, and actually covered all their bases when they decided to embark on that journey. Yeah. So if you want to if you want to invest in another amazing company, look at where that particular CEO is heading to next and buy stock there. That's what I would do. Got you. Got you. Okay. Um now you mentioned the uh, innovation theatrics. Um that definitely sounds like something that could be a uh, problematic for investors if they're not able to identify that. So what are some like red flags that investors could could sort of sniff out of from a company that's not um not necessarily uh, practicing what they preach. Yeah, um, we have we have a new book coming out. Uh, it's called Innovation Accounting. That's looking exactly at how do we measure innovation. And even if you are an investor, I would encourage you to to maybe pick up a copy when when it's going to come out. Because even though you're not going to apply what we what we talk about in the book, because that's not necessarily a book for you, uh, there are some very interesting cues there on what to look for in a company doing proper innovation. Um, I would uh, I would use a couple of indicators um, in particular to analyze that. I would look at the portfolio distribution of the company. How much uh, of it is just core and investing in in the core investing? Let's say if you're oil and gas, how much of your investment yearly goes to just oil and gas ideas and to the core oil and gas business? And uh, what is the distribution of investment in other areas, in transformational ideas, in adjacent ideas? You know, moving towards that sustainable future, for example, if that's the path you want to you want to go on. Um, if you're an automotive company, look at uh, if you you want to invest in an automotive company, look at uh, look at, for example, investments that they have done in the mobility area. Instead of just building cars and building, let's say, the next the next hybrid engine or the next electric engine, look at uh, if they have investments, uh, serious investments outside of the we build a car, we sell the car business model, and they've invested in uh, mobility. Uh, an example here would be Daimler. I'm not a big fan of their cars. Uh, on the contrary, I would say I would never recommend buying, uh, buying a Mercedes. I have some very nasty experiences myself and also other, other people in my circle. Uh, but they're amazing at, uh, at portfolio management. They invest a lot in mobility solution. They acquire a lot of startups in the mobility space. They've invested a lot for their venture arm. Um, those are some of the things you, you look at first, right? Like what's the portfolio distribution and what's the investment distribution on portfolios? Um, and th- that information is somewhat publicly available. You can look it up. You can see where where they're making investments. Speak with their speak with their folks in the in the venture capital department and see where they're placing bets. And you're able to to spot spot the the pattern. Are they just investing in in core? Or are they thinking 
broadly, and also look at uh, what's the percentage of investment going to core relative to other areas. If they invest 95, 99% of the revenue in, back into core, that's an organization that is at one point going to be disrupted. Obviously, it depends on the industry. Uh, some industries are going to be disrupted sooner than others. Another indicator you can look at is uh, something we call in the book the uh, NPVI, New Product Vitality Index. Uh, this is an indicator that uh, was initially created by, by 3M uh, back in the 80s, I think, or beginning 90s. Um, and now it's becoming very popular with, 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 with many organizations around the world. Uh, what does NPVI mean? It means uh, that you're looking at this year's revenue how much in percentage of this year's revenue comes from products that were launched in the past three and five-year horizon. Um, and uh, you obviously try to find organizations that have that usually around 25 to 30%. I think the goal for 3M when they created this, this indicator in the 80s or 90s was around 33%. I think they became a bit more realistic as they started deploying this. And they settled for somewhere around 20, 25% uh, mark. Um, I would encourage you to, 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 to look up where does revenue come from, how much revenue is being generated by new products and really new products. If you, if you take, if you take the Daimler Corporation, if they just launched another A class, yes, they will label it as a new product, but essentially is the old A class with probably new design, new features. Look at how much of the revenue actually comes from stuff that is totally different from, from their core and then decide how far they are from that 25% mark. Look at, uh, look at the disruption potential of the industry and then make your own judgment and say, hey, I'm going to invest in that. That looks like a company that is future-proofing. Yeah, so it sounds like you can you can use financial statements to some extent to identify innovation. Just don't purely look at the growth of the revenue and the profitability. Look at, look at where it's coming from. And also, I would say, um, I'm sure you would agree, is do some more of the qualitative work or call the investor relations and ask them you know, some harder questions or read the investor presentation. Obviously, you would do that, but find where their strategy is and, where, and, and follow the money from how are they investing in that strategy and how, and, and then track, I guess, track the strategy in their new investments and see how they're doing with that. Good summary. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess... Yeah, I mean, because you can't, you can only find so much out looking, just looking uh, once over on a financial statement. There's so much more to look at. Um, I mean, I even like to go on Glassdoor and read um, um, reviews from employees. That's uh, th- that's a great resource. Uh, you can use CB Insights. Again, uh, has amazing data on various industries and various companies. Uh, there's plenty of sources nowadays that that you as an investor can can use in order to understand if a company is actually future proofing itself where uh, they're just uh, they're just riding the current wave and paying everybody ridiculous bonuses at the end of the year yeah for sure uh, about that um, what are some of the sort of some of the things we can look at from an incentive uh, perspective that might be holding up progress with innovation well if you're just incentivizing people on on sales you're going to essentially just have an organization that is focused on purely selling the existing core business. Uh, we spoke earlier about um, N- NPVI, right? The New Product Vitality Index. Um, if you're going to do more research, you're going to see that another company that adopted NPVI is Cisco. Everybody knows Cisco. They, it's it's one of the darlings of the of the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, again, a company that is able to constantly uh, reinvent itself and do new stuff. Um, I think Cisco is very interesting from the NPVI perspective because. They were one of the first companies that was able to tie uh, middle managers' yearly reviews to NPVI. So essentially, if you oh. were, uh, yeah, very, very interesting. If you were, uh, if you were, and, and by all means, please research this. I got this through a conversation I had with, uh, with Cisco when I was working on the first book on the corporate startup. Um, now, if in Cisco back in the day, I don't know what if they're currently doing that or how that evolved. So the information that I'm about to give you, it's at least, let's say, four or five years old. Um, what they were doing, they were using NPVI. They agreed on a certain, they agreed on a certain uh, figure for NPVI, somewhere around the, the 20, 25% mark. 
If you were a uh, manager with PL responsibility, profit and loss responsibility, so you are sitting somewhere around VP, senior VP level, uh, you would have um, your bonus and your annual review connected to hitting NPVI uh, figures within your teams and within your department, if that was obviously uh, possible. If you were a VP of, uh, let's say, HR, it would be pretty difficult for you to hit any of those targets. But if you were a VP in, in, in a product or in a customer-facing department, uh, that definitely fell under your responsibility. And it was very interesting because a lot of people were negatively reviewed, although they hit on their sales uh, figures, they hit on their profit figures too, uh, they, they didn't hit on their uh, NPGI uh, figures. They were sanctioned at the end of the year, meaning some of them didn't get their bonuses, uh, meaning some people just get, get a slap on the wrist and, hey, watch out next year, hit on your NPVI targets. Um, again, I would, I would encourage investors to look if, uh, if there are any mechanisms like this in place in the companies they want to invest in. If there is any way that um, managers are incentivized for innovation, are incentivized for growth beyond today's core. If you're just incentivized on sales, you can only expect people selling and, and developing pills. But once people will stop taking pills... Um, then you have a big problem in your hand as a pharma company. Yeah, the, that's really cool. The whole NPVI thing is really, really fascinating. I think that's a great metric. And I hope more and more companies are using that metric to judge themselves. And it would be cool if they would disclose that publicly as well. Um, I haven't really seen that publicly disclosed. Um, have you seen that I'm, publicly? No, not not really. I think I think the only companies that were pretty public about it were, were 3M. And uh, and Cisco back in the day, but again, 3M back in the 90s and Cisco probably around also 10 years ago, five, 10 years ago. Uh, other companies are either not thinking about it or uh, they don't disclose it. One of our ambition with uh, with uh, with the innovation accounting book is to create that framework uh, for companies to use at least when they communicate with the investors. Communicate your portfolio distribution. Communicate your MPVI. Com- com- uh, communicate. All the other indicators we put there, like for example, the efficiency of efficiency of innovation investment, we call it AII. It's a great indicator. There are some companies using that. That's essentially explaining to an investor or to a board member uh, how much of the NPVI number, uh, how much have we actually spent for every new dollar of revenue in the NPVI number. You say, hey, um, this NPVI number for this year is. 10 million, which is equivalent to, let's say, 1.5% of our total revenue. Tell me for that 10 million, how many millions have you spent on innovation over the same period of time, over the same three years? Uh, obviously, you're looking to have a ratio that's greater than one, right? You want to spend, you want to get more than you have invested in innovation. Um, and again, that's another great indicator that uh, that companies should disclose, at least to investors, in order to show that they, they run an, an effective and, and efficient, at the end of the day, uh, innovation ecosystem. Yeah, that's great. That's great. All right. I think we're running well on time here. Is there anything um, you want to wrap up with at all? Um, maybe talk about the book a little bit more or any more um, ideas you have that investors could use? As I said, the, the book is kind of like speaking for both um, executives in, in the companies and, uh, and senior leadership in, uh, in the companies that are trying to wrap their heads around how do we measure innovation. But I think um, at least there's a couple of chapters there that the investors can use in order to understand um, how do we evaluate a company through a future-proofing lens. And uh, again, the chapter on um, on executive uh, on executive um, on the executive dashboard that's that's what we call it uh, is particularly interesting because uh, indicators like like NPVI, like AII, portfolio distribution, and there's probably another eight, yeah, six or eight other indicators there that are presented um, will make a lot of sense to to investors. And the, the beautiful part about it is that all those indicators are mutually supportive. Um, my advice to any uh, investor and to any executive for that matter is try not to boil innovation down to one indicator. Because if you boil it to one indicator, 
you are most likely going to have a lot of blind spots and you might take the wrong decision. Take, for example, NPVI. If you just look at NPVI to measure if some if a company is growing beyond its core, uh, that might be misleading because it's an indicator that can be easily gamed. And uh, it's an indicator that only tells you half of the picture. If you are complementing NPVI findings with other findings, like, for example, how much of that revenue comes from areas which are not core, uh, that, again, becomes way more powerful of an information than without that. So, again, I would encourage you, simply putting it, don't boil growth and don't boil future potential down to one single indicator. Try to have an array, try to be like the GPS, like near a sat-nav system, multiple satellites that converge on one location and say, yeah, this that's exactly where you are. You never have one satellite pinpointing you in that particular location. You always have three, four, or five. I would encourage you to, to take that, uh, that same approach when looking at uh, the future of a company. I think that's really important. And I also just think... Um when you're investing um investing in things, even if it's a value company like a value stock, um there's there's still room for innovation for those guys. They have to, right? So make sure you're picking, you don't want to pick uh the dead the dead money and go. You want to really pick the the well priced stocks, you know, that are that are innovating well and have and are future proofing themselves. hundred percent. Yep. And so with with that, um how can how can people uh reach out to you or um how can they get your book? Um, LinkedIn will be, will be the best place. So also Twitter, I'm pretty active on this network. So I don't use other networks. I don't even have an Instagram account. Um, uh, yeah, LinkedIn, just, just look me up. Then Toma, I'm probably going to be there when you find me because my title says something like author of, uh, the corporate startup and innovation accounting. And, uh, the book, uh, if you're, if you're listening in the U S the book is probably going to come out in, uh, in spring in the U S. If you are listening in Europe, you can go to amazon.co.uk.de.spain or .netherlands and uh, you can already pre-order and it's going to probably be delivered to your doorstep by mid-September, so less than a month ago. In, in the US, you guys have to wait, unfortunately, or what you can do, you can get it shipped from, from Europe, but that's going to probably cost a bit more. Okay, fantastic, fantastic. All right. So I really appreciate you coming on today. I think we learned a lot. And I think um, my listeners will really appreciate some of that knowledge when they're um, seeking out new investment ideas. 